how do you integrate life? How do you synthesize the parts of life that may feel incongruent until you dig so deep into them, you realize, oh, this is life. <laughs> like I was thinking about that performance the other day and, oh, me working and building this performance and being here in the Grammys moment and focusing on that is therapeutic. It's a way for me to transmit something to other people who may be going through that, but also for our family to have a moment of celebration, a bright moment in this period. It's a way to kind of channel my energy and focus to be in the present because of what the performance demands. There's nobody quite like John Batiste. As one of the most innovative composers of his generation, Batiste is redefining musical expression in the 21st century. His music is a unique blend of jazz, classical, and pop, all woven together with his belief that musical collaboration makes us all more human. While many artists are defined by their fan base or their hit singles, Batiste's cultural influence comes from something much deeper— At a time of strife and uncertainty, John Batiste uses music to create a sense of collective joy. He's won the Oscar for Best Original Score for the Disney Pixar film Soul, served as the band leader for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, and recently appeared in the new remake of The Color Purple. He's won five Grammys, including 2022 Album of the Year for We Are. And last year, he released American Symphony, a documentary about his year of epic highs and lows. The film traces his life over the course of 2022, when he was nominated for 11 Grammys, one album of the year, and performed his original symphony at Carnegie Hall, all while helping his life partner, writer Suleika Jawad, through a terrifying resurgence of leukemia. The film gets to the heart of Batiste's artistic philosophy and explores how music knits together both tragedy and joy. Now, a song that Batiste wrote for American Symphony called It Never Went Away has been nominated for the Oscar for Best Original Song, and his latest album, World Music Radio, just earned him six Grammy nominations, including Album of the Year. This year, he's also headlining his first tour, The Uneasy Tour, which he says is about purifying the airwaves for the country ahead of the all-important 2024 presidential election. In this conversation, we talked about growing up in a musical family, how music has seen him through his darkest moments, and why he believes creative community can heal a fractured nation. I'm Charlotte Alter, senior correspondent for Time, and this is Person of the Week. John, obviously, anybody who's ever met you knows that music is really in your blood. It's really so who you are. And you came from this incredible family of musical artists and activists in New Orleans. Can we go back to the very beginning? Do you remember the first piece of music you ever heard? Or a moment when you felt like, you know, this is really who I am? I remember when I was a kid, they would have these commercials that would come on for the Mardi Gras season in New Orleans, Carnival in Brazil. It actually mm-hmm. um, was a Professor Longhead song. It's called Big hmm. Chief. And if you hear a clip of Big Chief, this piano part in the song is so expressive. It's wild. It sounds like somebody yodeling, 
but it's a blues yodel and it's on the piano. Hmm. I don't know how he made the notes bend on the piano like it's a guitar. What did it sound like? It's like all kinds of stuff. <laughs> it's hard to even sing it. Mm-hmm. But it was one of those things that I remember vividly. And first thinking, I wonder how you do that. Like, how do you actually hmm. manifest that sound in the air? And then also how it felt. It felt like a community. And the ways that you think about community in New Orleans is food, dancing, all this incredible architecture and these sounds and rhythms blended together in ways that you just know are from years and years of lineage. And it felt like he encapsulated that all in this 10-second piano riff that peaked out through this Mardi Gras commercial. I don't even remember hmm. what the commercial was for. I don't know why we'd be advertising Mardi Gras in New Orleans. They would all know about it. <laughs> right, like, like, like someone in New Orleans is like, Mardi Gras, what's that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, what are you talking about? I've never heard of that. No, no, it was like <laughs> one of those things I didn't understand what the commercial was about, but it hit me, mm-hmm. like the music hmm. just jumped through. So that was, wow. I was probably 10 years old. Wow. And your whole family, I mean, there are many members of your family who play musical instruments. Can you talk me through that? Help me understand how music operated in your family. I mean, you know my dad. It's that thing that he did when I was coming up, really influencing me with singing, playing the bass. It's that thing that a parent does when they see, oh, the kid maybe has something, and they they sort of kind of guide you along, but they don't push you toward it and hope that the fire lights on its own Mm -hmm. within you. So he was the first musical mentor I had in that regard. Hmm. And he would sing and he would say, let me show you these chords. Or he would say, listen to this recording. And I learned the recording and I would try to play with him. And then eventually I would be playing with my cousins. They had the family band, which was my uncles and my dad. But then the junior band was me and my older cousins. I was the youngest. So Mm -hmm. that's how I ended up playing the piano. We had three drummers Hmm. (laughs) and... You know, everybody wanted to stay on the drums, but the priority of the drums went to the older cousins. So, <laughs> Lil Bat, we need a piano player. And my mother was also instrumental in that. She said, you know mm-hmm. what? You should play the piano. In fact, I'm going to get you the best classical music teachers and piano teachers I can find. So, I, I give credit to my parents and obviously my community for hmm. sort of putting me in the vicinity, and then something clicked along the way. I don't know when or how, just at a certain moment, it's like, oh, huh. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about your mom? She made sure you had a lot of different creative outlets, right? Not just music. Well, my mother is a visionary. She was somebody who, at the beginning of my musical development, she was also very much a proponent of putting me in all types of other extracurricular enriching activities. You know, we studied coding. I was in tennis lessons and gymnastics lessons. And that was super important, coupled with the fact that she also had a vision about the environment and the planet Before it was a trend, before it was in vogue, she was an environmentalist. She actually went back to school when I was in elementary to get a a, a master's degree in environmental studies. And this is a woman with two kids who already has a career 
and decides to study something else so that she can get deeper into a curiosity that she has. And she's the oldest daughter of these incredible New Orleans icons in my eyes, my grandfather and my late grandmother, David and Henrietta Gaucher. David was one of the first wave of integrating the Navy. He was a part of the time when Dr. King was advocating for workers' rights and all the incredible things that that generation paved the way for. You can imagine in the household that she grew up in as the eldest daughter of eight. Hmm. She had so much responsibility so early and so many values that were instilled in her and faith that was instilled in her. So there was Hmm. just such a drive and a vision that she had for upward mobility and enrichment in ways that are not shallow. Hmm. Did you ever have a moment where you were like, you know, why am I doing gymnastics? I just want to be playing piano. I just want to be playing music. Like, music is who I am. Did you rebel against that at all? Of course. I mean, I rebelled in that I didn't focus so much on any of it. Then eventually I got into video games and I started investing my time in that. And that was a wild feedback loop that led back to music. The soundtrack Mm. of those video games, a lot of that was influencing the way that I felt about music composition because those soundtracks would be a part of games and beloved character themes that I was so invested in. And then that Mm. would lead back to an understanding of, wow, how do I play this on the piano? And then those piano lessons started to come in handy because I had a bunch of keyboards and things I could play. And then I would start to program music with my cousins and we would start composing things and building things together. Right. Well, I also remember hearing that you were sort of a shy kid, and that's really not your personality at all right now. So how did you come out of your shell? Well, that was the thing about performance that it demands. Once you Mm. get to a certain level of music and you have a vision that you want to share, then you have this daunting realization that (laughs) I have to go stand on stage or I have to find a way to share it. I got to figure out Mm -hmm. a way to be with the people as an advocate for this thing that's in my head. I didn't really have so many of the gifts of natural extroversion that my relatives had. So that made it even more evident. You know, I was like, oh, I can't do what what he's doing or what she's doing. I don't want to be up there. So I think that was also a big part of it, learning to perform, having observed all of them and having observed other people. I had a Rolodex of things to try on until I could figure out who I was. Wow. So can you tell me what Juilliard was like for you? You know, what did you learn there? And also, what did you not learn there? Juilliard is a school that has such a story tradition. It has such a deep lineage of musical excellence. And you feel that prism of classical pedagogy and the great American composers in the golden age of American music. So that's the brand of the school. That's what ultimately made it something that I gravitated towards over the other schools. Now, the thing I didn't pick up there is how do you take these early tools, these elements, these building blocks of what we know modern music as today and modernize them. (laughs) How do you Hmm. enter the contemporary world 
and have something of value to offer and to share that doesn't feel like you're a preservationist or you're reenacting something. And those things have value, but how do you take the past and all of the value and the foundational wisdom of all that and blend it with the present to create the future? Hmm. That's something that they don't teach you. And that's a hard thing to figure out, especially when you're in that moment and there's such a reverence for right. this foundational stuff. It's such a reverence for these things that it almost makes you feel that if you're trying something different or if you're pushing for something that's outside of that, you're an alien. Hmm. <laughs> you're almost viewed as somebody who is a disruptor. And, you know, that's what I felt. I felt a lot of that energy and pressure. And that reverence also made me feel like, wow, we don't have the ability within us to achieve the level of greatness of the things we're studying. We're deemed lesser just by our reverence for this. Hmm. <laughs> we could never be this. We could never be as great. And I never believed that. But that's also where you met and created your band, Stay Human, right? Yes. How did Stay Human go from touring street festivals and jazz festivals and being this very of-the-community band to becoming the house band for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert? Stay Human was like a Joe Saylor, who's still one of my closest friends and drummer in the band. We started out with no money, no gigs, <laughs> no real understanding of what we wanted to do other than just get better as musicians and build mm -hmm. a band that we could go and um, find some gigs to play. <laughs> um, fast forward mm -hmm. to 2011, 2012, it's my last year of Juilliard. I'm finishing a master's degree program. So is Joe, Eddie Barbash, Ibanda Ruhumbika. We're going down in the subway. We're playing just for people because this is part of this philosophy that I was pushing against and really trying to create my own version of what I took from the, the master's. How do I make a John Batiste version of this? How do I make a statement mm. in the modern times? And so I thought, Stay Human, that's the band's name. What we play is called social music. It's music for the people. It's blending all of the musics to create a new genre because genre doesn't exist to me. This is when I started to develop my philosophy. And hmm. we're going to play for people in the concert halls and we're going to play for them on the streets and in the subways. And, I'm, right. and it's going to be the highest level of music. It's going to be like if Billie Holiday or Duke Ellington or Beethoven, Mozart came down and played in the subway. And not necessarily playing their music, but it's like that's the level that we're driving for. Hmm. So that's the beginning of Stay Human. And it, right. it made a lot of noise, which led to how we got involved with the Colbert show. Right. And so um, your 2021 smash hit album, We Are, uh, really took you to a totally different level of fame in 2022. Because that's what swept the Grammys that year. I want to hear just a little bit more about We Are, because it really sort of reflected and expressed and encapsulated this very difficult moment in American history. You know, it was coming right after the pandemic, the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, other Black Americans who were the victims of police brutality. Tell me more about what that project meant to you and what were you trying to say with that? I wanted to say that everybody 
deserves the same level of respect, humanity, and ultimately we're born the same, we're one and the same, we all have those same desires. But at the same time as I was saying that there's a universal humanism, I was also celebrating the culture and lineage that I come from. So on the album, you literally have my personal lineage, which mm-hmm. is, you know, from my nephews, my mother and father, my grandfather, my high school marching band, and the choir from my grandfather's church. You have so many of those personal lineage elements in the lineage of Black American music, gospel, R&B, soul, jazz, funk, is all represented. So for me, the goal was to make a comprehensive statement that was very, very personal in terms of the nature of its influences. But in being personal, it establishes the we are, the universal. Mm. It speaks to, at the same time, as we're protesting in the wake of George Floyd's murder, you have people protesting all around the world and people pushing forward their real voice, their humanity, and trying to break free from marginalization of oppressive governments and and oppressive regimes and oppressive systems. So that was really what we are was speaking to and the universal by going back home and going back to a lot of the roots of the music that I was born into. More with the one and only John Batiste when we come back. So you met your wife, Suleika, when you were very young. You guys met as teenagers in band camp. And in 2023, you and Suleika released a documentary called American Symphony, which looks back largely at 2022. Um, And the documentary is about this very difficult time for you where, you know, on the one hand, you— were nominated for 11 Grammys. You were at this career high. And that was also the year that your wife, Suleika, began treatment again for leukemia after being in years of remission. So what was that like? It felt as though we were carrying a major weight on our back as we were in the middle of this celebration, and no one could see it. It was invisible. Yeah. And that was really the hardest part of the moment, knowing where to put your focus and knowing how to be present. Because ultimately, I think that's what makes us all the happiest. It makes us all feel that we're enriched by the moments of our lives. It's how can we actually be in them? How can we be present? when you're having 
these milestone moments and how can you savor it and how can you be there in the moments of difficulty and moments of tragedy in your life as mm -hmm. well? How can you be there for the people who are closest to you? How can you be there to process it for yourself? And when you have two things that are pulling hmm. in the most opposite directions of life, it's hard to know how to hold it all. So that's what it felt like in the moment. I couldn't describe that to you in that moment, but in retrospect, now I can say that's what it felt like. Hmm. So the film builds up to this end moment of your performance of your major piece, American Symphony, at Carnegie Hall at the end. But I want to ask you about this other moment uh, where you say something really interesting. You say, I didn't ever want to be famous. I was never making music with that intention. And even though I'm grateful for it, if I was to go up more levels in fame, it's just more stuff to take you away from your family and your people, and you've got to protect that ambition from taking over. So I'm curious, how are you thinking about that now? I mean, your band was called Stay Human. So how do you do that? It's, uh, it's always a challenge. It is the fundamental challenge. Hmm. It's the art and commerce debate. Right. How do you make something that you care about all the time? How do you really make something that you really, really believe in? I think that's a guiding principle that keeps you grounded in your humanity and in your values. Because for us, when I say us, I'm talking about Sulaika and I, we have a vision of living a creative life together. Hmm. So because there's that shared value, it allows for us to have creative spaces of our own and creative spaces together. So the first hmm. step is pick the right partner because if y'all ain't aligned on the foundational level, then it's going to be crazy. So then <laughs> once you have that, which I'm blessed to have, that is the biggest and best resource of life. So... <laughs> Once you have that, then it allows, okay, so what do we actually want to do? Like, what do hmm. we actually want to do versus What stuff, do the two of you actually right. want to do together? <laughs> what yeah. do the two of us want to actually do together versus what is stuff that people want us to do or we feel pressured to do or maybe we thought we wanted to do? And it also just is about, again, that guiding light of if you're doing something you care about, a lot of times those other things that are distracting – will be stuff that is pulling you away from the thing that you actually value. You know, you wrote this original song for that documentary called It Never Went Away that was just nominated for an Oscar. Congratulations. Um, how is that song different for you? How did that song feel different than other music you've written? In some ways, it was a um, a beautiful return to form in that it was the piano and the voice which, you know, one of my albums in 2018 was just the piano and the voice. And that album, Hollywood Africans, was for me at, at that moment a reset. You know, I had been doing the late show with Stephen Colbert. Our band had been in the trenches of really learning how to do the show, how to be on television, how to be in the midst of this incredible machine. And then how do you take that and find your artistry in that. And I wanted to make something that was very pure 
and stripped down in a way that um, I could discover what that meant for me in that moment. So hmm. now this was another check-in. It was a way to kind of go back, but I'm in a completely different place in life now. So a lot of what came out of this period was music about what Sulaik and I were going through as well mm-hmm. as music thinking about the world and humanity and how do we unify, how do we see each other better. And so then your 2023 album, World Music Radio, your seventh studio album was just nominated for six Grammys. What were you trying to do with this album? I wanted to make something that was limitless and hmm. completely unhampered, unhindered by the genre constructs of popular music. Hmm. But to show that by doing that, it doesn't have to be music that's inaccessible or experimental. It's almost like when people make things that are not adhering to these constructs, which I think actually don't exist. And if we made art or we would just come from another planet and we were to discover music, Mm-hmm. And the history of music and all its shades and colors and expressions, we wouldn't say, oh, that's R&B. Oh, that's prog rock. Well, that's interesting, yeah. We wouldn't say that. We would create based upon what we were inspired to create and who we were creating with. So that's why I was like, you know, I have a lot of friends who I've wanted to create with, a lot of people who wanted to collaborate with me. And I was thinking about the concept of this album and a lot of the moments that I wanted to make with this album were to show not only that that's what's possible with music, but as an allegory for humanity, we can actually exist in these spaces together. So it was hmm. really a beautiful, it's almost an album that I was thinking about making mainly for children. It was something huh. that when people listened to it from the beginning, it was meant to flow as it would if you were watching a narrative unfold on screen. So along the way, you had a role in the 2023 musical, The Color Purple, which just came out really recently over Christmas. And this winter, soon, February 16th, you're kicking off your first North American headlining tour, which is called The Uneasy Tour, Purifying the Airwaves for the People. So I have to ask you this. Why is it called The Uneasy Tour? What are you uneasy about? We're going through the United States of America during the most pivotal election in the history of the country, arguably the history of this country, you could say that this election is really the fight to save democracy. And we're going through these areas of the country and swing states in the country, states where there's a great responsibility and there's an uneasiness that I feel And there's a song on the album that's about this with Lil Wayne. It's called Uneasy. Hmm. But it also is a way of speaking to the moment we're in. And what this music and what this album and what this tour is meant to do in terms of encouraging people. I think, you know, we always have to connect back to that humanity and being able to see each other. Because right now we only see left and the right. We only see Mm -hmm. a binary And the other side is almost inhuman at this point. We're not Mm. voting. We're not living. We're not coexisting 
based on logic and humanity anymore. It's this weird warped emotion and post-truthism that is out of control. And I think it's really something that I'm very, very bothered by. And I think music and art and expression has a major role to play in that. Yeah. And so what is it that you hope this tour will do? Is the idea to register voters in swing states? Like, what's the kind of nuts and bolts political aspect of this? Well, we oftentimes think about it first as humanism and not Mm -hmm. as politics. So ultimately, the goal is to really inform people and comfort people and give them a space within their community to see other people who they may not normally see or probably don't agree with and have this experience together. And that leaves the community in better standing and better harmony. And Mm -hmm. I've been doing that my entire career. Stay Human does these incredible, it's like a pop-up performance mixed with a community gathering, mixed with a processional from New Orleans. There's just one of these many musical performance devices that I've created with my musicians that has this instant ability to create connection. So we're going to be doing Mm. that. We're going to be going into schools and community centers. And we also will be registering people to vote. But um, we really don't look at things in this way of um, Mm. politics before we look at the humanity. We have a political point of view, but I think we're in a time where everybody's leading with that. (laughs) And there needs to be some way of galvanizing everyone around the fact that if we don't get this together, we all are going to be out of here. John, it's been so much fun learning more about you and all of your many massive creative pursuits and your exciting new projects. But now we want to learn a little bit more about the smaller moments that make up your everyday life in a segment we like to call The Last Time. So when is the last time you took a vacation? Last month. Where'd you go? We went down to Mexico. Oh, my God. That sounds so fun. When's the last time you played a new instrument? Wow. Last time I played a new instrument, there aren't many left that I haven't played. But I did play this drum that's back here in my studio For those of you who can't see, which is all of you, (laughs) it's like a folkloric drum from Indonesia. I don't Hmm. remember the name of it, but a friend of mine gifted it to me. When's the last time you went on a date with your wife? Oh, a few days ago. Where'd you go? We went out to a restaurant and we just Mm -hmm. sat there and talked all night. It was like we were kids again. (laughs) When's the last time you played music with your father? Last time I played music with my dad was in New Orleans for the Jazz Fest in the middle of last year, so about six months ago. And that was going to actually be my next question is, when's the last time you went back to New Orleans? Is that your most recent trip there? No, no, no. I'm always down there in stealth, down in New Orleans, and people don't know I'm there. It's kind of hard sometimes to announce that I'm there. So when I visit, I'll just be in relatives' houses, <laughs> tucked hmm. away. And is that intentional? Is it like you want to kind of just be able to visit without having all the stuff 
no fanfare. Just, yeah. you know, uh, in the neighborhood, hanging out, right. just being at home. Um, well, John, I know you have to go, but I just want to end by asking, how is Suleika's health right now? How's she doing? Oh, thanks for asking. She's doing as great as possible. It's actually a miracle. She's doing great. She's well. She's able to travel. As I said, you know, we went on a vacation. Yeah. And, you know, this is after not being able to travel for a year and a half because of chemotherapy and treatment and all these things. Now she's, we're out in the world together. That's great. That's great. I'm so happy to hear it. Well, John, thank you so, so much for being here. Really appreciate you making time to speak with us. Thank you. John is nominated for six awards at this weekend's Grammys on February 4th. And you can catch him on tour starting February 16th. Thank you so much for listening to Person of the Week. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd really love to hear from you. So send your tips or thoughts on our show to personoftheweek at time.com. I'm Charlotte Alter. See you next week. Person of the Week is hosted by Charlotte Alter. It's produced by Nina Bisbano and India Witkin. Our senior producer is Ursula Summer. Our story editor is Katie Feather. This episode was mixed by Rebecca Seidel. Our theme music was composed by Billy Lippy. Joseph Frischmith is our fact checker. Person of the Week is a co-production of Time Studios and Sugar 23. At Time, our executive producers are Dave O'Connor, Michael Erlinger, and Sam Jacobs. At Sugar 23, our executive producers are Mike Mayer, Michael Sugar, and Liam Billingham. Sasha Mathias is the head of audio at Time. You can find us online at time.com slash person of the week and wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. 